0: Our story tonight is primarily going to take place in Genesis chapter 32, so I invite you to turn your Bibles there with me now, but while you're going there, let me set the stage for you. Jacob has been in somewhat of a self-imposed exile, away from his homeland, away from his family for many years now, but God is calling him back to the land that he has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to him, Jacob himself. And so Jacob is returning now to the promised land, not as he left a single man with nothing more than a staff and a cruise of oil. He's coming back heavy laden with gold, with with goods, with flocks, with his wives, with his children, with his servants, a large company coming back to claim the promise that God has given to him. Problem is, he hears tidings that his brother Esau was marching against him with 400 men of war. Jacob and his family, his company, completely unarmed, unprepared for any hostile encounter. Jacob was in dire straits. He was in trouble because he recognized, he remembered well What led to his brother taking this vow of vengeance upon him? It was his guile, his deceit, his craftiness. And so now he finds himself in a very peculiar situation. And as any decently-minded father would do, he tries to save the innocent He sends some gifts ahead to try to appease the wrath of his brother. He divides his group into different companies to send them on in different directions. So if one gets fallen upon and and massacred, perhaps the other one might escape. And it is here that we pick up the story. Because there's something left for Jacob to do. In Genesis chapter 32, we begin reading in verse 23... And he took them, Jacob did, and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. We can imagine the scene well. There's the babbling brook, Jabbok. His children, his wives, his servants, his flocks, they're gone. The sun has set, there is a cool night breeze in the Palestinian wilderness, and there we see a lone figure. Jacob was left alone, but that was not the only way he was alone. Jacob that night was alone in every sense of the word. He was alone because he had no place to call his home. The land that God has promised was before him, but the way was barred by Esau and his army, he could not turn back to where he had come from. That was Laban's land, and we all know how pleasantly they split ways. Nowhere to go, no one to turn to. Isaac, no help. His mother, who loved him dearly, unfortunately was unfortunately, he, she wasn't with them anymore, but more unfortunately, she was really the cause Of this problem also even Rachel his beloved dear wife for whom he labored for so many years what could she do for him now no one to turn to nowhere to hide nowhere to go but Jacob the supplanter he's always been a crafty one He always had a plan for everything. He had a plan how he could uh, use a bowl of lentils as leverage in a special deal with his brother for a birthright. He had a plan. He and his mother concocted a plan, remember? To get the blessing from the blind father, Isaac. He always had a plan when he started working with Laban. His full business acumen took over, and he had a plan to one-up his father-in-law. But what could any of his human plans help him now? He was a wealthy man. But what could all his wealth do for him now? Does this sound familiar to any of us? How often we try to seize the situation and to solve it in our own feeble human ways. And so sometimes God waits. He waits until we are left alone like Jacob. But this night, more than in any other way, Jacob was alone because he recognized that he alone was responsible For this peculiar predicament, it was his sin. He could not plead innocence like Daniel in the lion's den. He was not innocent like the three young men who, was, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. He was not innocent. He was plagued with a guilty conscience. Yes, he had already uh, confessed his sin to God, but yet the memory haunted him. And you can be sure that there is an accuser of the brethren that night that would not let him forget that. Jacob, it is because of your sin that your brother marches against you. It's all your fault. Your children are going to die. Your wives are going to die. All because of you. He was alone. There's no sense of loneliness like the loneliness of being guilty for sin that we can no longer remedy. Yes, he was alone. Jacob was left alone, very alone, but... That night, I believe, he remembered another evening many years ago in similar circumstances by himself at midnight in the wilderness with nothing but a stone to lay his head. And he sees in his dream that angel ladder. The ladder that reaches straight from the earth, straight up to the presence of God. He saw the angels ascending and descending. He heard the voice of God himself speak those words of reassurance, of promise, of protection and deliverance. God was with him that night when he thought he was all alone. And so this night, Jacob prays. This night he sends everyone away because there's one more thing he's got to do. He needs to reconnect With that ladder, he wanted to hear once again the words of that God, the same promise, the reassurance, the protection that God has promised him because honestly, he has nowhere left to turn. He had no other source of help. Jacob had reached the bottom. No more plans, no more schemes, nothing left. No one can help him. And it is in this part of the story that we expect, ah, yeah, we rub our hands in eager anticipation. Everyone watch. This is where God is about to step into our experience. God is about to move. Just like the children of Israel at the shores of the Red Sea. The the water before them, Pharaoh's army behind them, the rocky mountains on either side, nowhere to go. And God delivered them. The disciples on the storm tossed sea, water filling their ship, too far from shore to swim. They were going to die, they were going to to sink, but Jesus delivers them. Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace, nowhere to look, nowhere to hide. No one to turn to. In those moments, God specializes in delivering his people. But tonight, Jacob expects some divine intervention, just like we do. We expect some miraculous moving of the arm of God for deliverance. And we know the end of the story, right? Sure, God does move. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what actually happens? Maybe it's not quite what we expect. Let's continue reading. Verse 24, Genesis 32. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Imagine with me, Jacob bowed low near the ground, prostrate before God. He is in anguish. His mind is is tormented with the memory of his wrongs. The responsibility of the lives of his innocent men, uh, men, women, and children under his care. All of a sudden, a strong arm seizes him and flings him to the ground. Jacob realizes this was not the gentle touch of a loving Savior. This was someone seeking to take his life. He flings around. His mind is in a whirl. He thinks probably, Lord, I'm not ready to die. I haven't gotten that needed blessing. I haven't gotten that reassurance. I can't die yet. Moreover, how can I die here alone without my family? They won't know what happened to me. And I can't leave them to die as innocent lambs to the slaughter when Esau finds them tomorrow. Lord, help Lord, save. Lord, deliver. In his mind, he's thinking these things. And the physical manifestation takes place as he wrestles, as he tackles, as he tries to get a headlock. Uh, uh, He tries to, to wrestle this man to the ground. He tries to get away. He's fighting for his life. All night long, the struggle goes on. The struggle both in body and in mind. We're told that the wrestle go, wrestling goes on from midnight till the breaking of the day. Probably a good five to six hours. Last week I visited my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They have a young boy. Playing with him for a few hours was exhausting enough. I can't imagine wrestling as for my life for five to six hours Jacob exerted almost supernatural effort, we are told. But as the twilight hours begin in the east, this mysterious stranger reaches out a finger and gently touches Jacob on his thigh. This was no ordinary touch instantly pain shoots through his body. He collapses in a heap on the ground, and I, only, I can only imagine the sharp pain pressing tears out of the corner of his eyes as he collapses utterly wasted from the night's trial. That supernatural touch instantly cripples this strong man. And we say to ourselves, this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is not what's supposed to happen. Jacob was already at rock bottom. He had nowhere left to turn. He only had God as his help. And what happens? He gets flattened on the desert floor. In that moment... In that moment, in the depth of his despair, mentally, emotionally, physically exhausted, the dirt from the desert floor matting his hair and his face because of the sweat of his physical exertion all night, the sting of a dislocated hip racking his body, Laying in a heap, helpless heap, on the ground. Jacob looks up. And in that moment, he realizes something. He, through blurry, tear-filled eyes, he he realizes, he recognizes the God that I had been praying to. The God that was my only help. The God who was my only protection. That God had come down and personally kicked me in the gut. That God had come down and tortured my body. He had tried to kill me for the last five hours. That God was the God in whom I was hoping... Can you understand the confusion in the mind of Jacob? Nothing made sense in that moment. The pieces did not fit together. His senses, everything that physically around him could be an external witness, told him only one thing. And the internal witness of his guilty conscience confirmed the same thing. Jacob, you are done. Even God Himself has turned against you. What hope do you have left? Jacob was a lost man to all outward appearances. Honestly, what more can you do when God himself has come down and turned against you? We often say, if God be for us, who can be against us? But in this instance, if God is against you, who can be for you? The despair that must have racked the body and the mind of Jacob. What would you do What should Jacob do? Well, we know the rest of the story. What does he do? Let's continue reading verse 26. And he said, the man said, Let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go, except you bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince has thou power with God and with men and has prevailed. In that moment, I want you to understand, to experience in your sanctified imagination what it must have been like to be Jacob in that moment. I imagine this could not have been more than a couple seconds, maybe a minute at most, that all of these things transpire. He gets flattened to the ground. The man is about to leave. And Jacob does something. In that moment, in that that moment in which victory or defeat is to occur, there was no time for contemplation of what had just transpired. There was no time for for Jacob to sit back and line up all of the facts and have an internal debate. There was no time for that. No time for rationalization. No time for an academic study of the problem. No time for any type of reasoning through the process. There was only time for instinct to act. And instinctively... The arm of faith extends through the mist of uncertainty, through all of those physical, external, internal witness that seem to say one thing. The arm of faith plunges through all of that and clings with a steely grasp upon the angel. And in that moment, in that moment, Jacob became Israel. In that moment, In that moment, Jacob prevailed with God. Because nothing is more apparently helpless, but really more invincible, than the one who feels his nothingness and casts himself relying wholly upon God. It was in that moment... When Jacob was completely waste, stripped of all self-sufficiency, stripped of all self-reliance, stripped of all self-dependence, in that moment when he lay prostrate and broken at the feet of Jesus, but yet when it made no sense, his hand clings, the arm of faith clings and clings and clings for the blessing. It was then that Jacob was invincible. This, my friends, is faith. This is the faith we need for such a time as this. Jacob recognized at that point when he realized who this angel was, he realized It is no longer necessary for me to live. It is only necessary that I maintain my grasp on Jesus. Because only in that way will I gain the blessing that I need. That, my friends, is faith. The demonstration of what faith can enable God's people to do. So we look at Jacob. And we think, wow, that's an intense story. But we share this story not because it is a nice Bible story to put our kids to sleep with, but because the experience of Jacob will happen again. What do I mean by that? Let's look together in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 5 For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time. Of what? Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Here, Jeremiah foretells a time in the future... ...in which the experience of Jacob will replicate in the lives of God's faithful people. But he doesn't just tell us that it will happen... He chooses a word picture to describe how serious that time is going to be. He says, this is a great day. So that none is like it. Not only that. The day or the trial, the testing time will be so severe. That it will be as though men will go through labor. Men having labor pains, I'm not a father, I'm not a doctor, but I know enough to know that that is not a pleasant experience. In Jeremiah, I believe he's grasping for the most painful experience known to man to describe what that day is going to be like. There is none like it when men have labor pains. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 When Michael shall stand up, that great prince which standeth with thy people, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. The Bible confirms in multiple places in Revelation, it's called the Great Tribulation, this last test called the time of Jacob's trouble will be more severe, more serious than any other test ever before but we ask how can that be don't we have stories of the faithful heroes of god who were threatened with their lives haven't we read those stories what about the dark ages What about the prophets? What about those listed in Hebrews eleven? Those sawn asunder, they were, they were in caves of of which the world was not worthy. All of these persecution stories, and even today there are persecution stories happening all over the world. How can this final test be more severe? The answer, I believe, is given to us by the pen of inspiration. Signs of the Times, November 27, 1879. Ellen White writes this. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and to destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them. For it appears to them, as to Jacob in his distress that God himself has become an avenging enemy. Did you catch that? In the time of Jacob's trouble, we are told that it will appear as though God himself has become an avenging enemy. That, my friends, therein lies the severity of the final test. Because the test is not simply whether we can withstand hunger, weariness, and delay. The test is not physical torture or cold, being cold or a sleepless night or running through the woods, running to the mountains. That's not the s- severity, does not lie therein. The severity of the test is not the physical one. Neither is the test in the time of Jacob's trouble an intellectual one. At that point, the test is not whether we can tr- choose the true from the counterfeit. That test is a test, but that test would have been over. It's not whether we know, oh, do we worship on the first day or the seventh day? The mark of the beast trial, that one would have been already over. In this time, the test will be a test of our loyalty and our relationship with Jesus. The test will be even when it appears that Jesus turns his back on us. We know the end of the story. He does not leave his people alone, but it appears that way in that moment when it appears that way. When it appears that God himself, it appears that he raises his arm to strike us. When it appears as though all hope is lost, will we still cling with the arm of faith? That, my friends, is the test. I read in the same paragraph in Signs of the Times, it is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of his people, to look out of and away from self to one who can bring help and salvation, that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering trust. Notice the last sentence. Here, faith is proved. You see, the issue in the time of Jacob's trouble is there is a burden in the great controversy that something has to be proven. The faith of the righteous has to be tested. It has to be demonstrated that it truly is gold, pure gold, refined in the fire. And in that day, when God's people don't need when they don't have the luxury of of time to cognitively line all the ducks up in a row and to analyze and to think through things but instinctively instinctively they reach out through the darkness and they hold on to the throne of grace when they do that in heaven god before the watching universe Before the angels, before the unfallen world, before Satan and his evil angels themselves, God says, behold, my people. Behold. Finally, God can say, indeed, the righteous, the just, truly do live by faith. And it is enough that they live by faith. That they indeed can live by faith. And look at them, they do live by faith. They are able to live faithful even when it appears as though I have left them. This is the result, God says, of a life of faith. This is the result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for them, Jesus' work in the sanctuary for them, and Christ dwelling in them. God said, this is the result of the plan of redemption. What other arguments do you have? In that day, In that day, God will show that indeed he does save to the uttermost. That though he raises his arm as if to slay his people, yet will they trust in him. Oh boy, this is fire and brimstone. But remember, Christ never leads his people down a path that he himself has not walked. Remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Christ bow down low before the Father, the weight of the world upon his shoulders, and he cries, my God, my God. Or, or, before he says that, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. On the cross, alone, hanging between heaven and earth, his disciples had fled him. Jesus was alone outside the city. He cries, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, when the darkness envelops him, when sin separates his father's face, when it appears, when that God himself has turned against him, as he drinks that cup filled with the wrath of God to its dregs, Jesus walked alone, suffering the consequence that we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. In that moment... In that moment, it appeared as though to Christ that God himself had become an avenging enemy. The darkness of sin, so thick that he could not in that instance see through the portals of the tomb. He could not see himself rising on the other side as a victor in that moment. But nevertheless, instinctively, even though Christ The the crowds around him were saying the same thing. The the sins of the world was crushing out his life. Christ's arm of faith extends into the darkness. And he cries, Into thy hands I commit, my spirit, my friends. That is the faith of Jesus. And so in the end times, at the time of Jacob's trouble, God will hold up his people and say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And so the great controversy in the time of Jacob's trouble will find an answer To that question, is it enough to live by faith in Jesus? And so what about today? We've talked about Jacob in the past and how his story reflects or foreshadows the experience in the future. But what about today? In the book, Our High Calling, page 321, I read this. Let none be discouraged in view of the severe trials to be met in the time of Jacob's trouble, which is yet before them. They are to work earnestly, anxiously, not for that time, but for today. What we want is to have a knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ now, and a personal experience now. In these precious closing hours of probation, we have a deep and living experience to gain. We shall thus form characters that shall ensure our deliverance in the time of trouble. God, in his mercy, shows us the picture of that severe test in the future, not to drive us to despair today, but in his mercy, he has given us the answers to the final exam. The final exam of this earth's history in the time of Jacob's trouble, God says, I will show you what that test will be so that today you can be studying and you can be preparing so that you shall be delivered in that day. And even in Jeremiah chapter 30, Right on the heels of discussing the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah immediately interjects, but he shall be delivered out of it. So how do we stand in such a time as then? It means we must live by faith for such a time as this. Today. Now. And so God, in his mercy today, he sends us those little quizzes to prepare us for that final exam. And we are kidding ourselves, my friends, when we think, oh yes, I will stand in that day, when we flunk every single quiz today. When God leads us through uncertain times, uncharted waters, do we question Do we doubt? Do we shake our fist at him and lose our confidence? When we experience pain, maybe inexplicable pain in our experience, do we question God? Do we wallow in discontent, in impatience? Do we say, God, show me the answer now? When God brings uh, circumstances to us that makes us uncomfortable... Do we complain? Do we question? Or do we cling by faith? We are often, too often, fair weather Christians. When the troubles come, and they will come, Those are God's opportunities to form us, to strengthen that arm of faith, to build up that muscle memory so when the time comes that there is no time to think, the arm of faith will reach out anyway. And so, friends, half-hearted cultural Christianity will not cut it the time is done for that sort of thing and even more than that i hasten to add an intellectual christianity and boy we adventists we sure are intellectual christians it is not enough because it is not enough to simply know what day is a true sabbath it is simply not enough to know that the dead do not speak because all oh, mercy if we reach that day in the time of jacob's trouble we weather the mark of the beast we we we, we make it through the test of of uh, spiritualism we do not fall for the deceptions of the false christ and the false prophets because we know all the apologetics we know all the bible verses we have the intellectual capacity to disprove the opposition but when the time comes that God himself tests our loyalty and our relationship with him. Oh, woe be to us that day if we find that our arm of faith has atrophied. Woe be to us when that day we realize we just simply lack the strength to reach and we still miss the blessing. What am I saying? Let's not forget the basics because the just, in the end, still must live by faith. And so that the appeal tonight as we wind down our message. How is your faith in Christ tonight? Does your arm of faith need a workout? Have you grown lazy, laxadaisical in the intensity after which you search for Jesus? Has the study of the Bible uh, degraded into just a, a treasure hunt, an Easter egg hunt, looking for the next sensational piece of text that we can wow our friends? Do we just study the Bible to teach the next Sabbath school lesson? Or are we studying the Bible to know Jesus? Do we want to know Jesus tonight? I remember when I was courting my wife. The intensity that I pursued her hand. Every waking and sleeping thought was on winning the prize to get to know this person maybe it's time that we invest that same level of passion in Jesus do you need to have your strength your faith in Jesus strengthened tonight maybe it's time to put down that smartphone to close that laptop computer and to give Jesus our undivided attention for a change. For others of us, perhaps we have been too segregated, compartmentalized in our lives. We say, Jesus, you stay in church on Sabbath, in my decisions during the week, in my studies, in my business dealings, in my work, in my career, in all of these things, you stay out. Maybe it's time for us to say, Jesus, you can have all of me and perhaps it's time for us to let Jesus make some decisions for us perhaps we've been convicted of certain things to do certain things to stop doing and we are fighting like Jacob fought the angel maybe it's time to stop fighting and say Lord Jesus I surrender But I won't let you go until you bless me. Perhaps it is time for us to make that recommitment today. Lord Jesus, may I know you as it is my privilege to know you. May I gain that respect, that first love experience once more, so that when the test comes, when our relationship is tried, That despite what my senses tell me, despite what everything around me might say, may I in that day maintain fidelity to God on the earth and may my arm of faith be strengthened that instinctively I will still cling to you. How many of us tonight want to say, Lord Jesus, take me, all of me, I am yours, and please be mine. Is that your desire? Do you want to stand ready in that great day to be ready for such a time as this? That is my prayer. I invite you now just to bow your heads with me as we commit our lives to Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you and your mercy do not long to see us swallowed up in despair but that you long to deliver us. And although we see the drastic measures that you're willing to take to lay Jacob down, broken before your feet, tonight, Jesus, we ourselves come contrite and broken at your feet, asking that you might fill our hearts that Christ might dwell in us, the hope of glory, that we might have the faith of Jesus and that our arm of faith might be strengthened to grasp, to cling, and to not let go. Train us today. We know that there will be difficulties and that that is your means by by which you train us, but we consent tonight, Lord, You can have all of us, every square inch, because we long to know Jesus as it is our privilege to know him, that in that day we will stand faithful for him. Bless us to this end. Be with us this Sabbath, and may you walk with us, we ask in Jesus' name.